Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we have long conversations about short stories. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. Today's guest is Dr. Netta Gordon, professor with the Department of English Language and Literature, where she teaches on the genre of short stories. She's also a past associate dean with the Faculty of Humanities. Netta wrote her PhD dissertation on Canadian women writing genealogical narratives, and she also researches contemporary Canadian literature about the Great War. She's published a book-length thematic introduction to the comic book series Fables. Her most recent book, Bearers of Risk, Writing Masculinity in Contemporary English-Canadian Short Story Cycles, examines nine short story collections from the first decade of the 21st century and looks at how authors play with and critique the way crises in masculinity are being centered. So welcome to the podcast, Netta. Thank you very much, Alison. It is wonderful to finally have you as a guest because we've had the opportunity to work together over the past few years. You've uh, just finished your role as Associate Dean. And um, you're back to focusing on English. I know it's um it's I was just telling my colleagues the other day it's like a homecoming. They even bought me a plant to welcome me back to the English department, which was oh that's very lovely. Very that's lovely. lovely. So I know one course that you do teach. I'm, I don't know if you're teaching it this year, but I've heard you talk about this course is your first year English course. <sighs> it's my favorite thing to teach is first year. And it's an interesting, I'm not teaching it this year. I'm not teaching anything this year. It's a very, um, I've got this wonderful research space for the year, which I thank Brock University for. (laughs) Um, But uh, the last time I taught it was the last year of my being associate dean. And it was interesting because I told the class repeatedly, we were sort of learning among the ruins because it was the last time that the English department taught first year as full year courses. Starting this year, they're split into half courses. So the next time I teach it, which is probably next fall or winter, it'll be a half course. And so thinking about that and thinking about how to change my pedagogy when we don't have this chance to kind of do the recursive, like, okay, let's try something and then let's go back and see what happened and move forward. That's not really available in 12 weeks anymore. So it's, um. Um, the department, the various members of the department who regularly teach first year, we've had a lot of time to discuss how things are going to shift because of that and what our expectations can be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be fine. I think it's going to be fine. But, it, you know, it's always, a good, it's always good as an instructor to be faced with a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, We've I certainly had lots of those over the past couple of years, haven't we? You know what? I, yes, it wasn't great, but I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about teaching when I had to change my pedagogy to suit an online environment. And this is going to be just another new way of rethinking that course. But, yes, I love it. So what makes you excited about teaching? First year or just in general? Well, first year, but in general, too. I guess, okay, I'll start with first year. I think that's probably easier because it's probably just, you know, end more (laughs) if I'm not teaching first year. I think that the discipline of literary studies, the way it is taught in university, or or the way we sort of think of it as um, a university discipline is just so different from high school. So that's one of the reasons I like first year because I get to kind of reorient their thinking. And I get to, so it's like almost like a fresh slate, even though English is taught, they have to have four English credits from high school. And I love that. I love like the idea of watching light bulbs turn on over and over and over again. Um, And I think teaching first year is kind of the core of the university. Like it's this idea that I'm now inviting a new set of junior scholars into my world. And, it, and the idea of the university really should be this idea of senior and junior scholars. And first year, it, it's, it's, it's a new way of them sort of taking ownership over what they're doing in terms of knowledge creation. So I love it. I just like, I love the energy. I love the questions. I love, lear- I learn so much about knowledge while I'm teaching. Like almost every single one of my research projects including the one I just finished and the one I'm starting now, has found its, the, the seed of that project is, is a discussion, a moment that comes up in a classroom. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, if I wasn't teaching, I don't think I could do the rest of my job. So I don't know if that's... 
And so it's like yeah. that in first year, it's like intensified. And then, you know, plus more, the, the further they go on in their education. And I teach a lot of introductory survey type stuff. Like I teach intro to literary theory and I teach early Canadian literature, but you know, it's just, and then upper year courses, including graduate courses, it's just that feeling of the, of talking with the community and facilitating that community, like advanced. <laughs> so yeah, it's the best. Excellent. So I was going to ask you about some texts that you like to teach, but you have hinted at some research projects that something you just finished and something you just started. So what did you just finish? Okay, so I start, I've just finished, um, and I mean, research is never really finished, right? It's like there's, there's always responses to work that you've done, and there's always ways that you can take things further, but I mean, a monograph that I worked on for about a decade was finally published in April of this year, and it's called Bearers of Risk, Writing Masculinity in Contemporary English-Canadian Short Story Cycles. And, you know, th that does feel a lot like a culmination of a project because, like, there's covers and you can put it on a shelf and stuff. And, and people can read it, right? It can, like, it, it's got this life of its own now where it's circulating in libraries and people can read it. And so that... That it's, I guess the re my part of my job is completed and now somebody else's takes over in terms of the way they read it and how it makes sense to them or they find it useful for their own research or not useful and they, t and they tell me about that. <laughs> and uh, monograph is a word that we do use in academia but might not be familiar to some oh, of our sorry. listeners. Oh, it's, no, that's what I'm here a, for. I'm here to ask the questions. Right, it's just a book and I don't know why we use it. That's so funny. Um, well, I'm, the, I'm anticipating my next research project but the person I was talking to asked me the same question. And she said, like, what's a monograph? And I said, it's just a fancy academic-y way of saying single authored book <laughs> and I don't know why we persist in using that word rather than just say book but that's what it is yeah. all right so tell me about the bearers of risk and I know yeah. you and I have chatted briefly about it for Brock News and I'll put an, a link to that article in the show right. notes for our listeners but yeah this idea of looking at masculinity yeah it's um so as I mentioned earlier the seed and we've talked about this before, the seed of this, this project came um, out of class. Um, I was teaching, I think like 15 years ago, a course in can the Canadian short story, and I was putting together the texts, and I was really, the, what I was focusing on when I was choosing texts or looking around for stuff was form, and really thinking about the short story cycle as being formally distinctive and you know, and, and, and what to do about that. And so I'm gathering together texts and I look at what I've got and I realize everything that I've chosen is by a man. And I was like, whoops. <laughs> um, a really interesting range of men writers, but still all men. And I thought, okay, I can either just get rid of half of those and choose a bunch of books by women, which is not hard to do in Canadian literature because there's tons of brilliant short story writers. But I thought, you know what, I, I think I'm going to go with this and I'm going to make writing by men and the issue of masculinity a topic of conversation. And the reason for that is, and this was a real shift for me because my entire dissertation was on writing by women, right? So it was a shift for me, but it sort of also came out of a, a sort of a thing I'd been noticing in classes, which is that while students were able to talk about femininity, in literature, they had a lot more trouble talking about masculinity. And, and I started reading around and there's this really great book by Sally Robinson called Marked Men, which is very much about the idea that for a very, very long period of time, the position of especially the white, straight, middle-class man was an unmarked position. It was normal, right? It was normative, normal. So when we say unmarked, it's kind of the default. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? And um, what part of what Robinson argues is that in the years following the civil rights movements in the 60s in America, that position, that normative position, default, as you say, becomes increasingly marked. And then she, she plays with the, the word marked and the idea that these figures who are newly identifiable also feel marked, i.e. threatened, 
right? So it was like, okay, that's a really cool concept to bring into a classroom. And I laid it straight out for the class. And it was really funny because um, as sometimes happens in English classrooms, it was a class, uh, it was a senior class and there was like 18 women in the class and two men <laughs> and they were marked. Um, anyway, but, and I said like, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about masculinity. And like, they couldn't do it. Mm. It was super, it was, and this was a very, very smart class. And they just had no vocabulary for thinking through, like, how do we talk about how men perform masculine identities? Like, what does that mean? And so that challenge for my, my students to have a vocabulary and my kind of inability to help them formulate that vocabulary just said, okay, well, I'm going to start thinking about that. And so that's a lot of what this book is about. And I was really trying to think of um, a vocabulary for talking about Canadian notions of masculinity. And I wasn't the only person who started like working on this. Masculinity studies really exploded in the early aughts. And it was, it's very interdisciplinary. So lots of social scientists, um, obviously gender studies people, but like film theory, like lots and lots of academics from different disciplines started doing this work of like trying to mark this identity and trying to sort of figure out how that identity shifts um, over time and in different spaces, right? So Bearers of Risk is really sort of thinking through the vocabulary of the contemporary. And then I like narrowed it and narrowed it and it was, it's very much like post 9-11 Canadian, um, mostly white, um, identities, although I do deal with some immigrant literature, um, David Besmoskis, um, Vincent Lamb, and uh, Anthony DeSauve, because, and, and, and the idea of the bearer of risk, like, so what do I mean by that? It's like this idea, these, the, the argument for the book is that for, in a post 9-11 world, and in this world where increasingly we understand that masculinity is a performance in the same way that femininity is a performance and that's a performance that can be like challenged and repeated and all of that kind of stuff, um, that it has become a strategic performance. Mm. Um, a certain kind of Canadian masculine identity as serving the community, as sacrificing, as anti-elitist becomes a very strategic set of performances which are mostly focused at maintaining a political status quo. <laughs> and when when you there and I, it is. <laughs> yeah, and when when you and I first talked about the, about this book and these ideas of of masculinity, that was earlier in 2022. I think we're still in 2022, um, where we were dealing with things like the, the trucker convoy and and particular performances of what it means to be Canadian. Yep. And um, I think when I came into that conversation, I think my ideas of masculinity were very inform informed by what was presented in American mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. And um, I seem to recall we talked a little bit about some of those differences between the, the American masculinity sure. and the Canadian version of it. And it had not occurred to me that there would be a difference <laughs> until you brought it out. So I, so I want to explore that a little bit more with you. Sure. That's one of the things that... Um, when I, especially in the section of the introduction where I'm talking about 9-11, right? And like 9-11 means something very, very specific in American culture. And I connected that to um, ways that scholars, for example, Sally Robinson, but there's others, Hamilton Carroll's um, book, Affirmative Reaction, which is about white masculinity in the U.S. was also really, really useful to me. Just the way that American masculinity in a post 9-11 world builds on, you know, American notions of individualism, of entrepreneurialism, right? Like stuff that we think about, like if, if we thought about it for five minutes, we'd be like, yeah, 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 that's part of, you know, American vocabulary, right? The way they think of themselves as individual, revolutionary, entrepreneurial, autonomous, like self-sufficient, self-sufficient, all of that stuff. And so I was looking at all these American scholars talking about the post 9-11 man using that sort of vocabulary. And I thought, okay, like what's going on in Canada? And, and, and I went to the literature, like that's what literature scholars do. We don't kind of try to think of it out of our own head. 
and what I saw in these texts, and, and writers are sort of wrestling with it, using it strategically, you know, there, there's a lot of ambivalence about this figure, but it is a figure of service and sacrifice and community oriented. And the whole idea is, and it's like, in American culture, there is this idea of like protecting the borders, but in the, the, the vocabulary, the rhetoric in Canada is, you, it's not a, so much about borders, it's about like the, the insides of the community, sort mm. of protecting that sense. And there's a lot of, you know, um, family stuff. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on labor and the sort of like the nobility of work, right? Mm. And that is in the literature. And I felt like that actually tells us something about some of the ways, well, when you and I were talking, um, it tells us the way some of the participants of things like the you know occupation of Ottawa and like the Freedom Convoy, the way they used words like freedom. I mean, like some of it is imported from the States, but some of it is like uniquely Canadian, like freedom to do what? Like that's such an empty signifier, right? Like that's such an empty word. Like, but it seems in Canada, it's like freedom to protect like this this sense of like niceness status mm. quo niceness even though a lot of the freedom convoy stuff was pretty aggressive and pretty um i don't know like it seemed very american maybe but there was there was also this like desire to to present this as no like this is just about protecting our sense of self our mm. sense of our ability for our community to just participate um, our sense of safety. And there, there was a lot of uh, use of sort of sacrificial language and like taking up space in ways that were, were not meant to seem aggressive, even though it felt very aggressive, but meant to seem like, no, we're sacrificing ourselves for the good of our community, which includes you, please join us, mm. right? So it's, you know, it's not a perfect match, but it's certainly the same kind of, and like, that's the idea of the bearer of risk. Mm -hmm. Like we will risk ourselves. We will sacrifice ourselves, our time, our energy, you know, um, we will like, <laughs> there was this like one guy who walked across Canada and like, I gave up my job and I gave up my home and I will sacrifice myself, but I'm doing this for you. I'm mm. doing this for the community. And there's a, there's a lot of that in the, interestingly in the literature as well um and not all the authors are comfortable with that but they're they're, they're working through it so this idea of the bearer of risk is that is that risk is that something like where does that sense of needing to make these big sacrifices where does that come from do you mm, think like is this question. is is this something that you know is absorbed through society is are these decisions that are being made more consciously i don't know this might be a, a, an impossible question to answer well no i mean like uh, what 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 I noticed in a lot of the literature is again this is a very post 911 th that's the period of literature that I'm looking at mm -hmm. it's like just a sort of 10 year mm -hmm. snapshot um, and so the impetus for the bearer of risk is destabilization right mm. like this idea that post 911 the world is increasingly threatened dangerous unsettled incomprehensible Right. And it's that cultural milieu that these figures are responding to. Although I would argue that that's also sort of a rhetorical strategy. It's like we're just responding to the world versus kind of admitting that like we're re responding to a sense of individual unsettlement. Like we personally as men don't know where we belong anymore. We don't know what our role is. Right. Um, and a, a lot of the, um, the scholarship on masculinity studies talks about that, like this sense of how um, an individual sense of kind of unsettlement, you know, like what happens when you feel unsettled? You can either go like, okay, the world is new. I'm going to figure out how to do that. Or your unsettlement leads you to say, nope, the world is wrong. Mm. Like, I don't feel like I belong in it. That's not my, that's not a me problem. That's a world problem. <laughs> right? And so then it leads to the actions, the, per, the performance the of performance masculinity of to kind of, of reinforce, right? Am yeah, I on the right, right track? Totally got it. Like, so it's exactly, it's like the, the bearer of risk says, oh, I just realized it's not me that's the problem. It's the world. So I'm going to do the sacrificial work 
the self-sacrificing work of changing the world, and it's always nostalgic, right? Like, mm. it's always changing the world back to the mm -hmm. way it used to be, you mm -hmm. know, which very conveniently was a way of the world where I felt very settled and had lots of power. And did, and well, and you were unmarked and didn't and have to, didn't the, have the to have to think about your terms of masculinity. That's right. So, you know, and, and I, and... Um, so yeah, that's what the book was yeah. about. And it's, and it's also about short stories. <laughs> yes, yes, and we will get to that. We will get to that. I just... I just find it so interesting, you know, like like you said, like this this project was was ten years in the making, and it comes out, and it's so timely that 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 these conversations and and just what we're seeing um, in politics and and whatnot, I think, can be really informed by thinking about masculinity and its performance and yeah. and and kind of where that's where some of these ideas and rhetoric is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that times of uncertainty are always, uh, literature is always a great thing to look at because writers are prescient. Writers are working through things before there is a scholarly vocabulary. Mm. Um, and I should, I, say, I should say artists because yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that artists are prophets. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. And, you yeah. Know, they, they're working through things before there is yeah. a way to really think through like what is happening. So, which is why it, uh, which may be why, like I was looking at this earlier period, but it it shows its relevance like 10 years later, 10, 12 years later. It's going to be really interesting in 10, 12 years from now Absolutely. to look at the art and literature that, that comes out oh of goodness. this kind of period, kind of from 2016 to, I don't know when 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 our uncertain, yeah. our current uncertainties are going to end, sure. um, but it's definitely, definitely going to be interesting. So why short stories? Okay, so <laughs> that was it's so funny because when I when I got my first responses back from reviewers. Okay, so for for listeners, the process of academic publishing. Yes, yes, please tell us about this. Is, yes, is long and tortured, um, but that's the way things become, you know, strong. Um, your arguments become strong. So my first responses back from what happens is you send out your manuscript um, or the, the press sends out your manuscript to anonymous readers. They read it, they take their time, they and they write a response. And these and are other professors who in are field. in that same field. Absolutely. And so then you get your readers' reports and you more often than not. Is this where you have um, the breakdown? <laughs> yes, um, this is this is where all the stories come from. Yeah. Of, uh, they say, yeah. okay, we need you to change all of these things. This isn't working. This is this isn't working. And it's so funny because I, you know, I was talking about this to my colleagues, and it's like just once, just once, I'd like to get a report that says don't change a word. <laughs> it's perfect, but that of course never happens. Um, Anyway, so, but the question, why short stories, yes. it, you know, was like number one question. Like that, they didn't feel that I sufficiently answered that question, which in, which in itself is hilarious because short stories as a genre are always in that sort of defensive maneuver. <laughs> like always. <laughs> They're always having to prove their worth. Like why defend their existence? It, absolutely, yeah. and like defend their existence in relation to the novel. And one of the things I always come back to is there's this critic. She's brilliant. She's an American short story critic, Mary Louise Pratt, and she writes. She's like, you know what? Like we should get over this defensiveness because yeah, there's. She says there are things about the short story that require. I'm misquoting her terribly. Um, are re that require us to look at the novel in order to make sense of, and that's just not true of the novel. Like, there's a qualifier in the term short story. Novels don't call themselves long stories. They're their Good own point. Term, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like short in, like how short? Short in relation to what? Like they are, they, the relationality is embedded into the term, so we should just get over it and like figure that out. So, okay, so I had to answer that question and I had to think about it, and I thought about it in terms of risk. Um, there's this idea, which is often like we sort of get defensive about it, but this idea of the short story as a training genre, as an apprentice genre, i.e. when readers are learning to read, i.e. you know, critical readers are learning to read and writers are learning to write, 
and they're working with prose, they start with short stories. Mm. You can't start with a novel. That's too long. <laughs> so like the craft of writing prose is you train, you train people to sort of respond to that and to do it through the short story. So there's this idea that you can risk more with a short story. And I also correlated that with just like, I had a wonderful research assistant who was, uh, had an MA from our program at Brock Lee, and he did some data analysis for me. And we looked at how many short story collections that were you know, prized or on long lists for national prizes, how many of them were debuts? Like debut, your debut publication as a prose writer is a collection of short stories. I eat an answer like half of them. Mm. So, and the, and the other half of them, in terms of looking at the lists, a lot of those were Alice Munro. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was just thinking about Alice Munro because I remember, I remember being, being assigned some of her, some of her oh. stories in, in, in high school. The, yeah, uh, and like rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. She deserves the other entire half of that. <laughs> um, in other words, sort of at, at a level of infrastructure, our publishing industry in Canada, which is very supportive of short stories as a genre and the short story collection as, as a genre, they too present writers who you, you might want to take a risk on because you've never read anything mm. by them before. They, the, the first thing they give you is like, here's a collection of short stories. If you like it, that writer's going to follow up with a novel. And mm. almost half, like I think six out of the nine Writers that I talk about, that's exactly what happened. Their debut publication was a short story collection, and they followed that up within a year or two with a novel. So just out of curiosity, and this might be outside the scope of, of, of your work, but I'm, I'm curious if there's, if there's a gendered aspect to the writing of short stories. Um, are, they, are they more associated with female authors or male authors? Um, I um, think that that's a really, really good question. And I think what happens, and there's... Um, there's another person who is, his name is Michael Bryson, and he sort of like did some, you know, data analysis to look at like one year of short story publications to like try to think of exactly that question. And I think I agree with his, a lot of his findings. I think that both men and women, and I should include like there's lots of non-binary people who are writing short stories as well like there's there's equal distribution mm-hmm. or sort of um, equitable distribution. What's different is how they're responded to. Okay. And what's different becomes sort of like what sort of stylistic things are valued in writers of different genders. So for example, one of the things that I noticed is that there is a, in the first part of Bearers of Risk, I'm looking at short story collections, which are Formally experimental, which brings us back to the course I talked. So formally experimental meaning? Like they're, they're very, um, so um, John Gould's uh, Kilter 55 Fictions is a collection of micro stories. Like none of the stories are longer than two or three pages So long. they're experimenting with the form exactly. of the short story. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then Paul Glennon's The Dodecahedron. It's like this like really intertextual story where like all, he had this whole geometric plan so that like each story would relate to the two stories on the other side and it was like the shape of the dodecahedron it's very oh interesting yeah no and it's super (laughs) cool and my students loved reading that one just because it's like it's really it's like a puzzle it's like a mathematical puzzle of a short story collection and then there's Stephen Marche's Shining at the Bottom of the Sea which is a fake literary anthology of a fictional country Right? Like, so it's like, oh, interesting. That's very interesting. And he's gone so far as like he's given all the fake authors in the collection author bios, which you can read at the end of the book. <laughs> but he made up everything. That, that, that feels to me, as an, as an outsider, <laughs> that that's even more work than a novel. Like, a novel, maybe you make up the characters and you make up one, right. one world, right. and here you're, you're really. Right. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm probably cutting, cutting, cutting novelists uh, well, no, short it's, there. It's, but it's, it's a ton yeah, of work. It's a yeah. Ton, it's a, but it's a different kind of work, yeah. right? Like it's a different kind of labor. Anyway, so one of the points that I make in looking at those three texts is the extent to which the experimentation was the only aspect of the collection that was talked about by reviewers. 
and just like how miraculous it was like and how much work it was and how clever and blah 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 and it was very masculine language used by critics to talk about like form the formal riskiness of these books but when you like it's like okay okay but what about the content and the content my argument is that it's actually very very it's the same kind of like status return to the status quo nostalgic you know men are unsettled we need to like paul glennon's book is is like basically about you know finding the undiscovered country like their exploration that narratives mm. and their stories about fathers and sons and inheritance like really basic stuff right and this was like one of the books that when i had students read it they couldn't see that they mm. couldn't see it they had no way of noticing that because they didn't have the vocabulary for it right mm -hmm. and you know Stephen Marche's book is like a colonial fantasy it's a white man who has invented a colonized island country and he's written every single voice in it mm. right yeah lots of really interesting <laughs> layers to that so so the other side of that is like okay so what are uh, there, it, this is not to say that there aren't women writers who are writing exp um, formally experimental short stories. There are. Like uh, Susie Gardner's stuff is so, so, so cool. Diane Schomperlin, she's been doing, like, she's been playing with the short story form forever. Forever. <laughs> but what gets valued a lot about women's writing, either valued or rejected as, like, not interesting, is realism. Like that when women write short stories, they're basically all trying to be Alice Munro and they are, their style can either be valued or rejected because it's essentially realism, mm. right? So it's like, I don't know so much if it's the content of a work is gendered or the response to it, the context for mm. it become gendered. And, you know, and that's just an interesting thing to notice mm -hmm. about our, our but, because I became very interested not only in the text themselves, but the circulation of the texts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with audience response, are there gendered aspects to that? I think so. And it's really, really hard to capture that. Yeah. Although easier now because of things like Goodreads, you know, all the um, Amazon.ca and Amazon.com reviewers' comments. Like there's more, and blogs, and just, mm -hmm. you know, there's more possibility for taking the temperature of reader of like amateur reader response in in the digital age than ever before mm -hmm. right because there are now archives and archives of this material and there's so much material that we need new strategies of reading it like that's one thing to read like the the four reviews that came out of Paul Glennon's <laughs> short story collection and there were only four because it was like a surprise nomination for the was it the governor general or the giller one of those um they were like oh my goodness we haven't reviewed this we should <laughs> or like even like nine reviews of something like vincent lamb's bloodletting and miraculous cures like that's totally doable for an individual scholar but when you're thinking about gauging possibly the gender dynamics of reader response on something like Goodreads, like th there's just so much data. Yeah. So much data, which yeah. kind of is starting, is is working towards my next project. Okay, so what is the next project? <sighs> what a transition, right? So smooth. You set these up so well. <laughs> okay, well, okay. I don't even know where to start. Like this is a, like, this is a saga, or it's the beginning of a saga, and it's a really good story. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Okay, because it, it, it also, all right, so, in sometime in like maybe February, I don't even remember when, I was, as academics tend to be, like asked to do, solicited to do this work on an encyclopedia uh, entry for um, its Cengage literature criticism series, whatever it is, um, on Anne-Marie MacDonald. Why was I asked? Because I'd written about Anne-Marie MacDonald sort of throughout my career. She was like the core of my dissertation, my first article, later art, whatever. And, and it, was, she's a short story writer no, or novelist? Anne MacDonald is, she's written one short story. It's called okay. The Hanged Man. It's in a collection called Gothic Toronto. It is oh. so funny. It is okay. so brilliant. But no, she is a playwright. Oh, place, okay. And novelist. And her most famous novel is Fall on Your Knees, which came out in 1996 and was like international, massive, 
explosive bestseller, sold a kabillion copies. She was part of Oprah's book club. Like, it was just like, wow. <laughs> anyway, my story is like, has too many beginnings now. Like, it, that book materially changed my life. And I don't, like, I don't mean that in a fuzzy way. I mean, materially changed my life in that I was doing my master's degree at Queen's, kind of, because I didn't know what else to do with my life. And I was fully expecting it to be a terminal degree. But we had to do these like fake Shirk and OGS applications. Shirk and OGS are funding bodies that you can you, you can get funding for your graduate work. Yeah. So I, we all had to do them. I was like, oh my god. I remember those when right? I from my own my own so, graduate days. So I was like, I don't have a project. I'll make one, literally make one up on this novel, which I loved and became a sort of slightly obsessed with. But you had no intention of actually no, we had to pursuing for, a PhD. And, but, you know, the school sends them in, and I got money. I got money, and I hadn't even applied to do a PhD, but all of a sudden I got a grant. And so I was at, I was at Queen's, and I sort of said, can I do a late application? And they're like, for sure. Because yes, because you don't get the money if you don't do the PhD. <laughs> um, just just no, to be clear to the, our listeners. The school gets the money. The, the, school, the school gets, gets the money. The money. Yep. So it was like, huh, okay, well... So like, and then I became an English professor. So do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like it materially it was a turning li- point. changed yeah. my life. And then she did in fact become uh, central to my dissertation and et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I taught on your knees. I taught it most recently in my first year class and the students loved it. They were so funny. They were like, they were the first comment I got was, this is the longest book that anybody has ever made me read. Because it is about like 500 pages. Oh, wow. Long. But it's a total page turner. It's amazing. You've got to read okay, it. Okay, I'm going to, I I have a very have big to. stack beside my bed right now. So I'm going to add this, this one to it. close to the top. It's so okay. good. Um, anyway, so what am I talking about? Oh, yeah. So I was yeah. asked to do this thing because she's written tons and tons of stuff since then. And one of the questions I was asked as an academic advisor for this thing is, is there a bibliography, a scholarly bibliography of stuff on Anne-Marie MacDonald and like scholarship on her, whatever. And there isn't. And I said, huh, there should be, there should be. So separate from doing that work for um, the literary encyclopedia, it's not the literary encyclopedia, it's the con- contemporary literary, I can't remember the name That's of That's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, um, I said, I'm going to apply for money from Brock, from Brock University to create a scholarly bibliography. Um, but... I had to make it a little, like, schmancier than just say, I just want to collect the scholarship. And I did, and I started, like, sort of very much like I did way back when I was doing my MA, sort of conceiving this larger project. And I got money from Brock to hire uh, some people who just finished doing the grad program to, like, build this bibliography. But some of this stuff was in the archives at Guelph. So I just, like, did that myself because it was easier. So I was doing that this summer. And I had to get permission to copy a play. Uh, Anne-Marie MacDonald wrote a musical in 2000 called Anything That Moves, which, is, which I saw. My husband took me, my, he was not my husband then, but he took me on opening night as a, uh, like a present, right? So I totally married him, obviously. Yes. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, but it's not been published, so I needed permission, this is such a long story, to copy it. And I, they said, well, you have to ask the author. So I found her assistant emailed her the project, said, can I, I just want to like copy it so I can read it. I'm not going to put it on or circulate it, whatever. You're not publishing it or anything. And so they said, yeah, for sure. And they in fact sent me just a PDF of it. (laughs) And then like a week later, dun, 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 I got an email from Anne-Marie McDonald. Oh, exciting. Saying, I've read your project proposal. That's one heart attack. And then she said, and I read an article you wrote (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was the second heart attack. Yeah, that's got to be nerve-wracking. Um, it was nerve-wracking. And, and she said, and this sounds really interesting, and let's talk. So first, okay, okay. So so it all of a sudden, this thing that I had, very much like what happened to me at Queen's, this thing which I had imagined became real, mm. right? Became like entirely real because now the subject of the project wanted to hear about it that's got to be terrifying and exciting at the same time I know (laughs) it is both terrifying and very exciting 
I, as our listeners know, my background in classics and, and history, I had no no chance of running into anyone that I was actually studying because, you know, they've been dead and gone for two thousand years. But like to be to be studying somebody who is alive and who is and, reading and what you're like, writing about. I know it's it's and she's and the thing is like this is sort of this is the a new year of Anne Marie McDonald. She's got a new play at Stratford, mm-hmm. which I just saw called Hamlet Nine One One, which is totally brilliant. Um, like it's so good, it's so smart, um, and I hope it be, it's published because I want to teach it. Like I like I want to put it in my first year class, right? Nice. And she's got a new novel coming out in about two weeks called Fane, which looks like it picks up on some of the work she was doing in in um, her earlier plays because it's set in the 19th century in Scotland. And finally, Fall on Your Knees. Like people have been trying to adapt that novel to a play for since it came out in 96, and it's finally been done. Hannah Moskowitz, who's a brilliant Canadian playwright. Um, and I believe, like, working with Alyssa Palmer, who is Anne Marie McDonald's partner, have finally, and it's, like, it's finally been adapted for the stage, and that's coming out, like, it's premiering at four theaters across Canada. And so anyway, it's, like, wow. it's, like, you know, uh, Anne Marie McDonald's, like, triumphant return, although she never really left. But it's a huge year for her work, so... To get to talk to her in the middle of that is just mind-blowing. And she's the sweetest person. She's wonderful. She's a genius. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah. So, it's become this big project on thinking about readership, thinking about... So, Anne-Marie McDonald, for those of you who don't know, um, and if you don't, just go and read her stuff. She's amazing. Um, She's a queer writer. She's a feminist writer. And she's a comedic writer. Like, everything she writes is at the same time as being often very, very sad and really difficult, is also hilariously funny. Like she's, Mm -hmm. and she has, I think, and I think she thinks too, um, an essentially comic vision of the world, which means that sort of in terms of genre, um, that means you end in a place where you are better off than when you started Mm -hmm. in some way. Even if that just means that everybody knows the terrible stuff mm. that has gone on, right? That's a better place to be than in a place of secrecy and repressed histories and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so part of it is about reception, the kind of like I'm, I'm thinking about like how do, we, how do we read responses to this? Because responses to her, especially her early work, were really mixed and they shift radically when she becomes... Henry McDonald, author of Falling Your Knees, which is part of Oprah's book club. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, whoop, she becomes a literary celebrity mm-hmm. then. But it's also part of, like, how she makes space for especially queer voices, feminist voices, but also she's of mixed race heritage. She's, like, Lebanese, Scottish, Canadian, everything. Um, like, how she makes space for non-normative voices through this comic vision. Like, she invites people in she makes life a bit difficult for you (laughs) but she makes you happy that you've joined this space with her so it's a lot about and and her work is highly um intertextual so like looking at all the patterns and puzzles and overlaps among between all her work so like it's it's become this big 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 messy fun thing that hopefully I can work on for another 10 years Excellent. Well, I want to read it before 10 years. Well, I, I kind of, like, I would really like it not to be another monograph. And remember, I, if oh, yeah. this was class, I would test everybody. Like, what do we mean by monograph? Like, I Single hope, author. That's right. I hope it's not only a book. I hope it's actually a big digital humanities project. Oh, that'd be so that exciting. That has a lot of um, mapping elements, spatial elements, you know, that sort of, I have a very, very fine colleague here at Brock in the in digital humanities, Aaron Morrow, and he has been extremely helpful in terms of helping me think like what it means to do a digital humanities project. And he, you know, introduced me to the concept of data feminism, which is like this incredibly cool, cool book by Lauren Klein and Catherine Dignazio. Anyway, like so ideally, I would like in this research project to not only get to study someone whose work I have loved for, like, since I was in high school, like, since Goodnight Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet came out. So not only do that, but also change myself as a researcher. 
in the mm. same way that I change myself as a teacher all the time. Yeah. Right. I want to push myself into thinking about knowledge production in new ways. Yeah. Oh, this is so exciting, and it's 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 exciting to hear how these projects come about, <laughs> and uh, kind of some of the the you know the chance conversations or kind of the chance assignment that you know suddenly revolutionizes everything for you and I'm going to um, put some of the titles you've mentioned um, in the show notes as well Um, probably not every single one but at least some of them we will put and um, I will I will list um, fall on your knees in there too just in case anybody's missed the name (laughs) so I could ask you so many more questions I have so many more questions I think I might just need to take your course (laughs) (laughs) but I want to shift gears a little bit Um, and I've got kind of two two different areas I want to explore a little bit so the first one you've mentioned working with research assistants Mm -hmm. and this might be something that people who haven't been in, in, in academia or who maybe are just starting to think about grad school or even just thinking about undergrad um, might be curious to kind of know sure. about. Could you tell us a little bit about what a research assistant is, who, who they are, what they do? What they do, yeah. I mean, this is, again, going back to one of the first things we talked about, like my idea that my role as a professor is to be a senior scholar in conversation with junior scholars who are working through different levels of their education. And so one of the ways you invite people into the world of knowledge production is not just in classrooms, but the opportunity to say, well, can you help me with my research, right? Like sometimes research happens in the classroom kind of implicitly, as it often does with me. But this is a much more explicit sort of apprenticeship, I suppose. So I usually, it is usually the case, at least um, with me, that I work with graduate students, either students who are in our MA program at Brock or are recently graduated from that MA program. Um, And it can be like you have to, the way an RA ship works is like it's a defined, usually a very defined task. So with Lee, who um, helped me do the work of, he, like I said, I need to know I gave them a, you know, a, a list of years. I need to know all the literary prizes that Canadian short story writers were eligible for. I need to know who, which texts were longlisted, which were shortlisted, which one, which were debuts. I like just gave them a task and said, do that, and I will pay you money <laughs> to do that. Um, Which is always appreciated by yeah, grad, well, grad yeah, students. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the other yeah. thing is that an RA ship is, is a professional designation, yeah. right? You pay, yeah. People get paid for this yeah. work. And it's something you put on your CV. Absolutely. So that as you go forward, you can show right. that you've been involved in right. a project. And so, as I said, the grant that I got for the like the seeds of the Anne Marie McDonald articulations, that's what it's called, Anne Marie Mar- Anne Marie McDonald articulations, because it's AMMA, because that uh. could be so pretty. Anyway, so I got a grant to hire three um, MA students and they just finished the program to and I said here are the books we split it up somebody's doing drama somebody's doing fall on your knees on its own because it's like such a massive thing and somebody's doing some of the other novels um, like find every review every scholarly response every interview every whatever and so that we can have a complete bibliographic database and we'll like figure out how to you know, sort it and com- like clean it up and then present it. That's like, that's a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, and most recently, and this is super exciting, um, I started, so I'm like, as I said, I'm starting to think about mapping in this new project, which, and, and literary geography is a brand new methodology for me that I'm still trying to get my head around. Um, and one of the ways I'm getting my head around it is I got a little bit of money from our own faculty of humanities from the Dean's Discretionary Hire a Student Fund. Like, we have the best faculty ever because there's a, like, a pot of money called Hire a Student. And for this, I hired two undergrads, so second-year students who I just taught in first year, um, who are even more excited about the Anne-Marie McDonald project than, like, I am because they read her book and they just are thrilled to bits. And what we're working on is how to integrate, like, so they're kind of my beta test students figuring out how to integrate literary geography and mapping software into an English studies course. 
Oh, that's exciting. So you have students <laughs> helping you develop Teaching. something for, for, for future. Oh, I yeah. love that. I love that. So I love like, the poetry of that. Yeah. So like they're, they're like, and it's, they're like, really? Because I said like, basically I'm going to pay you to be students in a pretend class because the class doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Well, it's actually an existing course, but I want to start integrating mapping software into the course and I need to practice doing that because I've yeah. never done it before. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be really cool. So yeah. it's like we're it's, we're starting it mostly next week. We've just had one meeting and it's like I'm going to give you like a jet ski overview of the course. It's my early Canadian literature course. Um, and then I'm going to give you kind of a jet ski like potted lecture of what I would teach in terms of like what is literary geography and why would that be relevant for early Canadian literature and you know like the the reason is because there's so much that is contested about mm. space mm -hmm. with you know early Canadian literature and so it really is a helpful way to sort of think through that to to actually map the spaces that are noted in some of the uh, some of these literary texts anyway and then <laughs> I'm gonna like try to teach the mapping software and like we put most of the hours in that because I think I will be very bad at it at first but the whole idea is that we I will get better at it and yep. it will help me get better at it and then they're gonna do a practice assignment which they just get paid to do and doesn't get marked like how good is that and but then, you'll get feedback from them exactly. about what works and what doesn't and then work. We have and like, like five hours at the end of the contract, which is just feedback, like telling yeah. me what worked, what didn't work. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, that's really so exciting. Fun. You and I are going to have to talk as this becomes a real course because I want to. Uh, well, it is a real course. Yeah. Early, it's early or sorry, course. as you as you yes. implement it into the course, but I, I should want say. It to yeah. be a real, a real methodology. Yeah. And like if it really works, then I can see sort of maybe doing a senior course, which is devoted to the idea of literary geography. But I'm not there yet. <laughs> okay. Well, we will have you back at some point for a conversation we'll on literary geography. It. it would be yeah. fun to have like once this project is yeah. over to maybe invite them in. Yeah. Um, uh, Donna and Renee, so they can tell you about their like what they learned and what the experience because they're just second years, right? So yeah. for them, it's a new. It's an it's exactly what you said. It's like a new way of thinking about like what goes on at the university. Yeah, and that's what I I love about the whole kind of RA situation. And and I know, for example, I hire students and recent students to work on the podcast. Right, um, you you get an opportunity as a student to, to explore some area that you wouldn't maybe on your own. Yeah. Or, yeah. And these are like, these are, I, I specifically chose students who are in the concurrent intermediate senior program. So they're, they're, oh, so they're in, they're exactly. in teacher's they're, ed. They're future teachers. And so just, I want to talk to them about, you know, how pedagogy happens. Like, how do you yes. learn how to teach? It's not, it's not magic. It's like, it's, it takes a lot of practice, and thinking and practice and like, you know what I mean? And, and just, I think that that, I want to hear back from them what they learned about teaching that's fantastic as part of this that's fantastic so the other question I have for you is the associate dean question um, because you just finished I guess the end of June you finished was it three years four years four years as associate dean so we have a dean of humanities Dr. Carol Miriam and then we have two associate deans three. And, we have three, three I'm sorry yes thank you <laughs> we used to just have two we have three associate deans um, we have a, an associate dean for the fine and performing arts we have an associate dean for uh, graduate students and research and we have an associate dean for undergraduate it's a long title undergraduate like, and curriculum under, undergraduate curriculum and student affairs or I can't remember yeah. it's like and that was the role that you had. I did. So what is an associate dean? What what kind of demystify it for us um, a little it's bit? Like, it's a funny, it's kind of a mysterious position. And I feel that having finished my really, really wonderful years of service in that position, um, it's kind of like middle management administration in that you are, you're, you are, you're, you're out of the union for those for that time so you are kind of not even though I was I was still teaching and still researching you're not like technically part of the professoriate I don't okay. know I'm not sure you're just not part of the union <laughs> um 
And I think that that's like important because in many ways, some of the things you're dealing with are student concerns mm-hmm. and you're, you have to be in the job of trying to adjudicate how to help students who are having challenges moving through their undergraduate programs for a variety of reasons. You, and, but you're also doing a lot of policy work, like so academic integrity policy, um, thinking about accessibility, thinking about like, so the reason I did four years rather than three is I did an extra year because of the pandemic, right? Mm. And thinking about teaching policy or best practices, um, and just trying, so the associate deans, we have our own community of other associate deans and all the other faculties, and we have a lot of long, um, really, really rich discussions about how university infrastructures, um, academic infrastructures, because that's that's the associate dean is an academic role, um, how the academic infrastructures have an effect on students, right? Mm-hmm. And like when I talk about academic infrastructures, I'm talking about policies for sure, but even things like the calendar. The academic calendar is a really important document, which for better or worse is kind of un- like inaccessible. Mm-hmm. I don't mean you can't find it. It's really, really easy to find, but it's like it's a genre that very few people are so good you're ref- at reading. <laughs> so you're referring to the course calendar, yeah. which lays out degree requirements, Absolutely. all of the potential and courses like that could contract. be offered. Okay. It's a con- you know what I mean? Like yeah. students have to follow program requirements. So like what happens, like you, so you're responsible for making sure that the conditions set up in the calendar are actually workable, doable. So you're, so you're not requiring cor- a course that like isn't ever being taught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, courses that like have prerequisites that are actually untenable, like whatever. Yeah. So yeah. you're thinking about that, but you're also dealing with, you know, every year, every year, units want to make changes to mm-hmm. the calendar because they want to update courses. They want to change their the sort of pedagogical direction, whatever. Um, and during the pandemic, we had like changes coming in that were just like global changes. Like this course, which it says in the calendar is only offered in person, now has to say it may be offered online because of course they all were offered online, right? Yeah. And it like it it's necessary to do that work because as I said, like the, the calendar is a contract. Like mm-hmm. it has to, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you do a lot of work just making sure that bit of infrastructure, crucial bit of infrastructure makes sense. So works. you're so you're working with the departments and the yep. chairs and they decide what they're going to offer and they they, they, they figure out what they're going to teach. And and they say what they want in the calendar and you look at it and go okay, mm, does this make sense? Like if you cross list okay. this course what what like you just sort of do the kind of domino effect thinking. Okay. And then once you approve it at the faculty level it then goes to a senate committee um, who looks at everything. They look at every course it's I mean it's to it is actually important to demystify mm-hmm. it because the amount of attention that gets paid to this thing by so many people at the, the all the care that goes into it that calendar is looked at by like hundreds of pairs of eyes before it finally gets approved by senate because that's it like that's your thing that mm-hmm. when you say what do I have to do in order to get a degree it's the calendar and students are not on their own in navigating no, this they because aren't. you also work with the academic advisors. Absolutely. And we have uh, right now Liz Hay and Elizabeth Maddow, mm-hmm. who are our academic advisors, and they meet with students and help demystify. And, right. and, uh, and you can like, tell us a little bit are, more. They are like, <laughs> they're like, if, if this was a sort of um, fantasy world, like in the genre yeah. of fantasy, they would be like the, the wizard librarians who like decode the calendar for students or like magicians or what any, you know what I mean? Like that's what they are. They are the people who are like, here is this occult document, which has been developed and approved by this like hundreds and hundreds of people. But now you, the student have to make your way through this thing. And I will help you. I will help you understand this you know, calendaries and like all these strange things and putting together, counting up credits and all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Like the academic advisors, they are, they're wizards because they have to do that work. And I know we always encourage students to meet with their academic advisor at least once a year just to yeah. check that their course selection is on track because there's nothing worse than 
getting to your fourth year and realizing that you're missing a prerequisite and you're not going to graduate when you had planned to graduate. And which is another thing that the the sort of like power that the Academy Associate Dean has vested within them is that every now and then it happens that something gets messed up with your program requirements. Like you have one too many of this credit, not enough of this credit. And in our faculty handbook, the Associate Dean does have the again, super magical power to say that's okay. I feel like (laughs) there should be a wand or something with your office. (laughs) I know. Or like I should have, like the associate dean should have an outfit. Maybe now that James Allard, you can make him start wearing like a robe and a big cap. Yes. So we have another English professor now in, 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 in the role. And academic integrity Mm -hmm. um, is really important. It's something you, something you deal with a little bit. Um, yeah, or that's, maybe that's a lot. That, well, it, <laughs> I don't know. It's it part of that role. In ter- yes, in ter- the way the academic integrity policy is written at Brock University, and it's quite similar to other universities, is that the ultimate decision-making responsibility is also vested with the associate dean. So something happens in a class, the professor brings the concern to the department, the department makes a recommendation as to whether the case should proceed or not proceed. Um, they, if they think it should proceed, i.e. it is a case of academic misconduct, the department is responsible for providing the evidence for their claim. So what do we mean with academic integrity and academic okay. misconduct? So academic integrity is a principle uh, that is at the core of the university, which is the idea that when you're engaged in any kind of knowledge production, you're doing it with integrity. You're doing your own work, like to put it in very, very basic terms. You are not falsifying results. You're not stealing other people's work. You're, you're doing... You're not copying and pasting. You're not doing any of that. Yeah. You're doing the work of knowledge production, which is exciting and incredible and challenging. And, you know, really, that is, that is the project of the university. You're doing it with integrity. And so the flip side of that is not <laughs> um, not having integrity, and that's called academic misconduct. And so when, as I said, so there's, if there's a suspected case of it, it goes to the department, the department has to provide evidence, but all, and they make a recommendation to the associate dean, but the associate dean is ultimately the, the person who makes the decision. Mm. Um, and you know, every now and then there's opportunity, like at every stage in the process, there's, there's opportunities for a student to talk about mitigating circumstances. And during the pandemic, there were, there was a lot of mitigating circumstances. Like Mm. there was extreme stress. So students may be copying or buying an essay because stress, stress, time management. You know, and it's, it's not, it's usually a case there where it's not like the thing goes away. But, you know, the penalty is um, lesser. So, for example, and the Faculty of Humanities, I think, has been a leader, an absolute leader, in terms of thinking about the academic integrity policy and the various processes that are that are part of that as an opportunity for learning. Mm. So, you know, there's sort of regularly the, the quote-unquote penalty is like, rewrite this. Rewrite this. And rewrite this on your own. Yeah. Um, yes, there will be like a you know, um, on some kind of automatic mark deduction, but it's not going to be a zero, right? And and you will give yourself the chance to see that you can do this work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and it's the associate dean that assigns. And also at Brock, we have tons of like learning workshops. Um, a to Z Learning does an amazing job with that. And so that, that can be a penalty. You can have like no academic penalty, but you can say like, but you have to go through this workshop. And until you complete the workshop on quoting and paraphrasing (laughs) (laughs) or appropriate collaboration, there's a hold on your grade and and you can't, you can't graduate until you've done it. So, you know, there's lots of ways of making sure that we, that we provide a good balance between maintaining that core principle of the university, which is you work with integrity, but also making sure that we're thinking about the student position and thinking about these very, very, they're very difficult moments for everybody involved mm-hmm. um, as an opportunity for learning, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's like the ideal 
mm-hmm. that it becomes an opportunity to like also to intervene to see what's happening with the student. Like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And and is there something that needs that we need some to supports do? or something? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So and so it. Becomes, so it's scary, but it's not necessarily the end of the world. No, nothing's the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> nothing's the end of the world. But it, but as you point out, I'm just thinking in my own TA experience and talking about academic integrity with with my students. Um, you know, it's something that I'll, that is kind of a new territory for Absolutely. some of them to 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 navigate. Is yeah. what does it what does it mean? And and there's there's even some areas that can be a little unclear like group work for example when it isn't isn't allowed and that kind of thing and so so it's important for students and instructors and TAs to be having those conversations as well um, so that you don't inadvertently fall fall into fall into and a lot of it again is like it's this whole thing of decoding vocabulary right like decoding like what what do we mean by all of this stuff yeah Um, and how important it is for everyone to understand the context within yeah. which they're working. I think that's good for everyone. And you know what, I'll throw in the show notes um, just um, a link to, if I can find it again, um, there's some videos that the that the yeah. university has has produced. They're just little bite-sized kind of. So if somebody is interested in learning a little bit more about academic integrity, um, there's a few more bite-sized pieces. But thank you so much for joining me today. I have really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I could easily talk for another hour with you. Um, but we will have to have you back, and I'm going to keep tabs on this literary geography uh, project, so and I look forward to I look forward to updates. So well, thank you, Allison. It, this is this is lots of fun because you and I have had this, these ongoing snippets of conversation for four years now. <laughs> so this was great to have some dedicated time. To I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca humanities. We love to hear from our listeners. So join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Attella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.